Welcome to Bike Talk with Dave. I'm your host, Dave Mabel, and I'm glad you're able to join me in these conversations with incredible people doing incredible things. Today's show is brought to you by the Iowa Mountain Bike Championship Series, a summer-long series of great mountain bike races in Iowa. Everything from shorter cross-country races to the indomitable marathon. And for everybody from kids and juniors through master's categories. You can find the entire schedule and information at www.bikeiowa.com backslash IMBCS. Or just click on bikeiowa.com and look for the link. We hope you check it out and put some of the IMBCS races on your schedule. I've got an extra special show for you today. You may have listened to my second episode, and if not, you are most welcome to, in which I talked to three guys from smaller countries who found their way to the starting line of the Cyclocross World Championship race in Fayetteville, Arkansas in January. One of those guys, Felipe Nystrom, has such an incredible story that it just needs to be shared. We talked for nearly two and a half hours. I'm splitting up our conversation into two episodes, but I'm dropping both of them at the same time so that you can jump right from the first to the second episode if you like, or you can space them out a bit. It is all up to you. Growing up in Costa Rica, Felipe had a rough bit with drugs and alcohol. He found himself on the streets and penniless. Well, I should really just let him tell you his story. But listen, before we begin, Felipe and I talk openly and graphically about depression and suicide. If you or someone you know is in crisis and having suicidal thoughts or thoughts of hurting themselves, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. And you can talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area anytime, 24-7, 365 days a year. If you're located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. And now, let's get to Felipe's story. Uh, So, how you doing, Felipe? 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 Yep, Felipe. Felipe, Felipe yeah. Nystrom from Costa Rica, living in <laughs> Portland, Oregon, presenting the hometown of Costa Rica at the latest World Championships cyclocross. That was pretty, uh, pretty awesome to see you out there. Actually, pretty awesome to see you uh, all season long, cutting it up with, uh, kind of with the kids, yeah. right? I talked to Trey, and he said you and he are the two oldest guys at uh, that lined up at Fayetteville. Yep, yep. Um, I think so. Yeah, it was uh, an amazing experience. I wish I'd been able to do some more of the races, but uh, that'll be the project for this coming season. And uh, yeah, I was always generally like I'd see the start list, and you know, the next guy would be ten years younger than I was than I am. Um, and I think at Fayetteville, there was the guy from uh, shoot, I just forgot the where he was from um he was i think 40 years old he's the guy that got disqualified yeah that was Was Trey. yeah and so we had a chat about that at the at the at the start line (laughs) yeah that's awesome Uh, you give us old guys you take away the excuses of us old guys (laughs) we can't say we're too old when you guys are still cutting it up with the uh 
literally kids half your age. Yep. Yeah, I think that's part of why I'm doing this, just with my history and just showing that that it's it's it really is never too late. If you if you want to do something, you can do it. It it may not always work out exactly how you wanted it, um, but at least this way, when you're, you know, the way I see it, when I'm 80 years old, um, I'll say, yeah, I got my ass kicked in those races, as opposed to what if I tried a little harder and tried to get into one of those races? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you did it, so you can't have any regrets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, toe in the line, which is awesome. So I want to get a bit into your history and what led you to the start line at Fayetteville. But first, how was Fayetteville? How how was it on Sunday? It was amazing. Um, I mean, for me, it was my first world championship. And so I think anywhere that it would have happened, it would have been amazing. <laughs> for sure. Uh, I think there's, uh, I guess, for the more... I, what do you say? Classic cyclocrosses. Maybe it wasn't what they would have hoped for um, in terms of versus Europe versus the U.S. The environment is a little different. I don't have too much experience uh, on that. It's just kind of a little bit of what I heard. But for me, I think it was great. I think the course was great. I really liked that part. I was there in April doing some pro mountain bike races when, as part of my planning to to get to Worlds. Um, the course itself was was super fast and it's one of those like we saw in October where if it's dry it's super fast and if it's wet it's just a slog fest. <laughs> it was a slog fest in October for sure. Yeah. And the thing was the, what made it so incredible in October is like delays leading into it even two hours before the race the men's race it was going to be super fast right. and then like hurricane hit <laughs> uh, yep. and changed everything. Um, I personally really like the new sections that they added in. Um, I think there was three of them that were different from, mm -hmm. from October. I, I don't know. I, I think it was a great course. And yeah. the crowd was amazing. I noticed that the crowd seemed to love an underdog. <laughs> yeah. did, uh, did you feel that? So, I, I, uh, not to toot my own horn, <laughs> but I'm almost certain that, like everybody... Each country had their fan base that mm -hmm. was super loud for them. The U.S. being home team, of course, you know, they, they were very well cheered. For sure. Um, I think Costa Rica was the most cheered country. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Like... I believe it. Having witnessed it, I, <laughs> I, you're not tooting your own horn. I, I think that is a fact. Yep. Yeah, and I, think... I talked to you, I think, two nights before the race. Uh-huh. Thursday mm -hmm. night maybe yeah. Friday night, and uh, you said you expected to, or you hoped to get three laps in. Great. And you were there for five. Yeah, that was amazing. I had said I wanted the goals for me were I really wanted to make it to the climb, to the top of the climb on the first lap, at least hanging on to the back of the group. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after that, it was to get at least three laps. If I got three laps, I'd be really happy. If I got four laps, I'd be ecstatic. And if I got five laps, it for me it was a win. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you won then. And yeah. I got I got to the top of the climb on the first lap, just like right there, and then got my five laps, which was amazing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. and and I saw it myself. Like the crowd was cheering you <laughs> on. What was yeah. it like going off that drop? The first time, so I was there, like I said, in in April mm -hmm. um, when I was trying to 
fig figure out what the traveling was going to be like, what the climate was going to be like, the area, the hotels, all that. And so I did I did try it a couple of times in on a mountain bike back then. And then in October, doing recon and then during the race, I tried it. And I will say the first couple of times in April and then again in October, it, for me it was uh scary. I mean that that drop is huge and that you can't really tell in the pictures, most of the pictures. Someone did send me a picture of myself uh at the just dropping in. Mm -hmm. And it, it's I'm basically looking straight down. Um, so I don't know if they, on TV you could really appreciate how steep that was, but that, that's quite a drop. It is quite a drop. I did a lap the, on Monday. The first half of those stairs, I was thinking, ah, cool, I'm on the running the stairs of the World Championship course. The second half of the stairs, I'm like, oh man, I got to make that drop. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, like 15 year old kids did it, so I could mm -hmm. suck it up and. So I, I just like trusted it and dropped, but it was, I mean, it put your heart up in your throat. Oh yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah. I think for me, it was, there was so much cheering going on there that even back in October, I was still on the brakes going down that drop. And then on uh, that at Worlds, there's just so many people there. I'm just like, just send it. Nice. And, and then as every, with each lap, I was able to get more and more speed. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you had a great day there. It was a beautiful weekend. I mean, the whole weekend was just perfect weather. Mm -hmm. And uh, every time I saw you, it looked like you were having fun and just really thoroughly enjoying the experience, which, which I think is great. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'd said in, a, in another interview with cyclocross not being uh, a traditional uh, discipline in, in Costa Rica or Latin America for that matter. Um, the pressure is a little bit different than what like Vanderpols or Van Aerts and Isabits would, would feel. For sure. <clears throat> uh, like even, or even like Tom Pitcock where, um, they, they, there's a lot of pressure to win, to perform for the result. My pressure was to, as a, basically as a making history, being the first Costa Rican, um, to be in, to participate in a World Cup and a World Championship races, um, to not make a fool out of myself, right? Because the idea is to try to open up the doors so that hopefully, you know, there's a 10, 12, 13, 15 year old that watched what I did. And within the next five to 10 years, we hopefully see, you know, three or four of them racing and who actually know how to handle their bikes. <laughs> but we're definitely, I'd say a good 15 years, um, if we were to start today, like right mm -hmm. now, put money into it, uh, we'd probably be about 10 to 15 years to where we could see an actual team uh, showing up to, to World Cup races from Costa Rica, right? So the idea was to put another country other than Northern European, US and Canada uh, on the cyclocross map um, and to do it in a way that they kind of portrayed uh, or represented what the Pura Vida, you know, the, what the Costa Rican lifestyle or, or type of person is, is like. Um, so I think we, I think there was great, regardless of what the, re the results were going to be, what the results were going to be. I mean, almost 40 years old, racing against the best in the world, like the top 0.0001%. Um, uh, so it wasn't ever about the results. It was about 
paving the way so that the future generations can then put the pressure on for results. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. I'd like to go back to your time in Costa Rica. You live in Oregon now. You have lived there seven, eight years now? Yep. Uh, going on, yeah, eight and a half, almost nine now. Eight and a half, almost nine years. Um, and the road to Portland for you is interesting, but you actually started out as a kid riding bikes, right? Racing yep. bikes. You were, you were a pretty accomplished junior on the road. Uh, well, actually, no. I appreciate that, but no. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I read something uh, wrong or something. I, I, was a, I was a soccer is the you know the sport. It's the uh -huh. sport. Okay. Um, I when I was about maybe fourteen, fifteen years old, I think it was. Um, I started doing a little. Uh, I guess you have a bike because that's how you get around. Okay. Um, I had a little BMX bike. But I got my first mountain bike when I was about 14, 15 years old and then joined the local town's team. Uh, team. And uh, I did a couple races. Mountain biking, I was never really, uh, I never, I think I won one race, like one big race as a, as a junior. Um, but usually I was like 10th to 20th. And then on the road, I really liked road racing. There was something about, we have the tour of Costa Rica. It happens in December. Mm -hmm. And I remember being on the highway and watching the caravan go by. First the policemen with all their sirens and then the cyclists and then all the cars. I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And I uh, thought that I really wanted to do that. Um, but there was always the soccer. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was also my my what had happened to me my things uh starting that happened when i was a kid starting to affect me that didn't really let me go all in and into cycling so it was just something i i kind of did and in road i don't think i ever got oh i think i don't know that i ever won a race i i think the best race best result i had was a third place in the junior national championship in like this like the either the 15, 16, or 17, 18 category. So podium, um, that's, I mean, that's yeah. legit. That's better than I ever did, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I think shortly thereafter, it was kind of when I kind of just lost interest in sports. Mm -hmm. um, you know, life was happening. And, and shortly after that was when you know, drugs and alcohol came in. So, um, yeah. So how old were you when uh, you kind of, life kind of started going sideways? Uh, probably about 19, 20. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, where I, were you like in education? What was your life like? What was your... Yeah, I was... So, you know, it's interesting. I always... I spent my entire uh, elementary school, high school, wishing to get into college because I was bullied a lot. Um, uh, in high school, I was, I think, one... All my classmates were one or two years older. Um, and so it just made it really hard to to... To make friends, I was always—I I guess I had learned that you always turn in your homework, you study for your tests, you, you know, things like that. And this high school I was in, the curriculum was great, is great. I love everything I learned there. It's just the, at the time there was a lot of partying. Uh, you know, the high school kids—that's kind of what they wanted to do. And so, you know, I'd get beat up for turning homework in or for getting a hundred on my test or just things. And it was a small school, so like I think the biggest class that I was a part of was I think in ninth or maybe 10th grade where there was like 13 of us in the class 
Um, but usually it was like maybe anywhere between five to 10 in classmates. So you get um, beat up for turning in your homework and making yeah, all the other kids look bad. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, there are just other things. Um, you know, I guess, I don't, I don't know, for whatever reason, maybe there was something I gave off uh, <laughs> that just other people picked up on and I was an easy target. Um, I guess I, I, I could never really figure it out. But anyway, I spent a lot of time wishing that I get into college. The sooner I got into college, the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was going to be grown ups, more mature people. And, and that's when everything would be great. But then, uh, so I got in when I, I grad, well, I started school when I was about university. I got into law school um, when I was about 17. Costa Rica is a little different where yeah, some people do, like here you go to high school, you graduate high school, you go to college, right? Um, in Costa Rica, the, it, sometimes it's, a lot of times it's not possible where you have to go to work so you can help support your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not maybe until five or 10 or even 15 years later where you can go back to school, where you can finally go to school and, and get a degree. Um, so a lot of my classmates were, you know, I was 17, 18, and a lot of my classmates, I think the closest one I had in one of my classes was 28. Mm-hmm. And so I spent all these years hoping to be in college, university, um, thinking that that's when I'd be able to make friends. Uh, well, now I was kind of just being put aside because I was so much younger than everybody else. Nobody wanted to hang out with the kid. Or when we did group, when there was group projects, they wanted to meet up at the bar and uh, you know talk about what they were going to do at the bar. But I was a minor, so I couldn't go to the bar. So nobody wanted me in their group. Right. So it just kind of went reinforced this this sense of rejection of like not being able, not fitting in anywhere. Um, so then I think uh, I was in school for about maybe two years uh, for law. And then I thought maybe if I switched to a different something else that that might be better. So I, I did about a year and a half of, of criminology. Huh. Um, but that was kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, where, you know, the, the, at that university, it was a different university. And at that university, everybody was older. At the first one, at least there were a few younger people here and there. But, but that other one, everybody was like over 30. Oh, wow. <laughs> So you yeah. really didn't have a peer group. No. And so, and I think some, right around in there uh, was when I went out, and, you know, for the first time, um, again, like 19, 20, like really went out. Like I, like I had drank a couple times pre in my teens, but never like for me, it was always, oh, I got a soccer game tomorrow or I got to train for, I have tr- you know, I have a training session today. It was always something. So it wasn't on my like it wasn't even on my radar but i remember when i went out the first time uh to this club <laughs> uh the i went when i walked in everybody was so well dressed you know and there was like everyone was super fashionable and uh, it, it was just like beautiful people like just like like movie stars and you know tv people right and i remember i had my first beer and I, at first, well, my first few sips, I hated it. It tasted horrible. I'm like, does anybody drink this? This sucks. The second one tasted a little better. The third one, now I'm starting to feel it. Right. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm starting to dance. 
and everybody was super nice. Like I couldn't believe it. There was all these, like the guys were super nice. So I found out afterwards it was a gay bar. Oh, so, huh? So, that's funny. <laughs> so, so like they probably thought, oh, like fresh meat over here. <laughs> everybody wanted to buy me drinks, and then the girl, the lady, the girls that were there, um, they were excited that there was somebody that wasn't gay. <laughs> at, the, at the club so then like there was all the attention there so i just like it was a honestly it was one of the first times in my entire life where i actually felt welcomed uh oh. anywhere yeah and i think uh you know a few tequila shots later and a few more beers dancing on a table taking my shirt off and like <laughs> you know um and I met, a, I made friends with like a group of people that were there. And then they invited me to, they, they, you know, when the, the club was closing, they said, Hey, you know, there's a rave tomorrow. We're all going, if you want to come with us. And I said, sure. And then I'd always liked electronic music. Um, I had a very small idea of what kind of went on at, along with that kind of music. Mm -hmm. um, but having never really gone out too much, it wasn't like, I didn't really have a good idea of what it was. And we showed up to this place and, you know, the net, the lights, it was up on a mountain at a club and it was up in the middle of nowhere and just the lights and the people, it was almost like, uh, people dressed like in the matrix in the first matrix, you know, using, using, I don't know, sunglasses, right. high fashion sunglasses and trench coats and dyed hair. And, um, it just seemed like the coolest thing that I'd ever been a part of. Um, and now that night, uh, one of the guys that I was with, he offered me ecstasy. He said, Hey, someone just gave me some ecstasy and, uh, we, we want, we can go half and half. And I had no idea what ecstasy was, but I said, well, if you're not going to eat it, I'll eat it. <laughs> I had no idea what it was. <laughs> and, uh, danger, danger, Will <laughs> Robinson. So he gave me, he cut it, he split it in mm -hmm. half and it was just the most euphoric, uh, amazing feeling. Like I just went around hugging people and it felt like people were hugging me back and, um, you know, everyone was super nice. It was just everything that I, I guess I hadn't been getting for most of my life. Um, this acceptance is, I guess what it comes down to, right. um, that, that just had never been there. Um, and so I think more than anything, that's kind of what, like you were saying, that's kind of what I got. Uh, hooked onto at first but then afterwards uh you know when it when it changed over to cocaine uh, you know that's that's when things really when started going south yeah <laughs> uh, that's when the the hand comes in and grabs you and starts pulling you into the dark hole yeah yeah and it's interesting because actually something the guy that gave me one of the first times i tried it the guy that gave it to me said you know i'm going to give you some of this but before I do, I want you to be very careful because this is white death. It will sneak up from behind you. It will start hugging you and it will start squeezing, but you won't know it until it's too late. Oh. And, and I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah, let's, let's do this. And yeah, sure enough, <laughs> huh. uh, that's what ended up happening. So how'd you get out? So... I guess I, I had tried it a couple of times, but I honestly preferred ecstasy and I only did that uh, a few times. It was still for me just, um, you know, go out on the weekend, maybe once a month, 
party and then you know that 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 was good and i was like that for the first six to eight months or so um but then at one of the parties i met who would become my my son's mom mm. and she was already very much into the partying and uh very much into cocaine and with her it was same thing like i had finally found somebody that was like me you know that had gone through stuff and just wanted to have fun and try to enjoy life and we thought that was the way to do it and uh so that's when the cocaine with her she kind of was the one that introduced me to like actually going to the place to buy it and hmm. uh uh and almost pretty much always having it readily available and so uh this would have been by when, when I was like 21 or so that we met um and uh by 23 we were going to you know i told her like i thought that it was her because of her that i was doing it <laughs> uh so i said like yeah we we need to break up or others we're going to kill each other here i mean we're just like something's going to happen and we ended up breaking up and then like 3 months after breaking up uh she called me and said uh, hey we need to talk i'm pregnant i'm 6 months pregnant <laughs> And at the time she had already started going out with a guy and right when I talked to her, I said, you, well, what do you want to do? You want to get back together? And she's like, no, I have my boyfriend. He's going to, he loves me. He's going to support me. Blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, fine. So you're the mom, I'm the dad, but you and I, and I thought that by getting away from her, I could stop, but no, no way. I was already hooked. Yeah. Um, hooked good. Um, to where over the next few years, um, once my son was born, I'd pick him up on Friday, on Fridays, drop him off on Sundays. Those were my vis visitations. Mm -hmm. And while I was with him, I wouldn't do anything, but it was hard. Um, and then on Sunday, as soon as I dropped him off at his house, on the way back, I was stopping at the dealer's house, like, wow. hey, making up time for the, you know, the days that I, the last three days. Right. Because I'm, because I can speak English, it was always relatively easy to find jobs in call centers in, in Costa Rica. So money wasn't, and call centers pay pretty good for, for Costa Rica. So I had money to pay for an apartment, um, you know, do pay for the things I needed to pay for and party hard. Hmm. Um, but as the years went by, um, you know, I start losing. I lost a job, but it never really mattered because I could just get another one. But as the years went by, it was became harder to get a job because now, now I'd been around all the calls. For sure, yeah. You had a history, uh, and you were burning bridges behind you. Yep. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, um, to the point where, in that time, um, I got to the point where I had like a psychotic breakdown. Oh wow. Uh, where I was like. They say it's because of the drugs, like, I, I guess so. And, and, and if you ask me now, I know, like, I was hearing things, I was seeing things, I heard voices, um, and I can, like, uh, say that I understand that it didn't happen, that it wasn't, that they weren't there. But for me, it was so real that, uh, like if you hooked me up to a lie detector test and asked me, hey, were those voices real? If I said no, uh, it'd probably catch a lie. <laughs> huh. Wow. That's how, that's how real it was. So so like I guess that's the difference between me not being crazy and or not as crazy <laughs> and uh uh and crazy, which is I I can 
I understand that it didn't happen, but it was so real that there's still that shadow of a doubt. <laughs> right, um, right. Like I would, if I was watching TV and there were subtitles, um, I would read the words that I was reading were different than what the person was saying in the show. And it could be a movie or a show that I'd watched, like Friends, for example. And I knew every episode by heart. And I knew that the words I was reading were not what they were saying. It was like something else. Huh. Um, so uh, I, then I started feeling like uh, I thought the DEA and the FBI and the CIA and this and that, they were all coming after me to where I couldn't be in my apartment. I'd go out on the street. Then I would think that cars were following me. I would actually hear radio chatter. Um, like he's he's walking down this street. Wow. Over, like, um, and even now when I like talking about it, thinking about it, it takes me back to how I felt like that, how scared I felt when, when that was happening. Cause like it was this constant battle. No, no, that's not possible. They like, even if it was real, they wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to hear them. But the sound was so real that, um, this is this constant back and forth. So I got to the point where I didn't want to live and I didn't feel I was brave enough to do anything about it, um, which made me feel even worse because like I sucked so much at life that I couldn't even kill myself and just basically would do drugs to try to numb all the pain from everything that happened and what a loser I'd become. Um, and then just hoped that someone would break into my apartment and shoot me. Wow. Or that I could walk, I would walk in front of buses to try to get hit and I never got hit. I would walk at 2 a.m. through the worst place you could think of to see if I got shot or knifed or, or stabbed. Or something. You were trying to do suicide by murder. Because I wasn't, because I, I, the way I saw it, I wasn't brave enough right. to do it myself. Until I finally tried, I actually tried to uh, choke myself with, with a belt. Um, and then it didn't work. And then I felt even worse because now I've tried, I knew it was what I was doing was bad. Uh, so there was a lot of regret and remorse. So then I needed to do more drugs to try to numb that pain. Uh, but then when the drug effect of the drugs left, now I felt even worse because now I tried to commit suicide, then also done drugs. Now I hadn't been to pick up my son. For, for two weekends. Oh, wow. Um, and it was just, uh, you know, spiraling and spiraling and spiraling. In 2004, I actually had the opportunity to come to, to the U.S. Uh, to live with family. And my aunt, she'll take any opportunity she can, even now, 17, 18 years later, to remind me about how I crashed. I was blacked out. I took out a telephone pole. Uh, by some miracle, I fortunately it was like a farm farmland area, so there wasn't like I don't know one in the morning. Um, I drove into the opposite lane, drove off the wall, hit off the road, hit a telephone pole, took it down, bounced across the highway, ended up on the other side. It could have been bad, um, and all that all that happened was a broken nose and two cracked ribs. Wow. Um, and you would think that things like that, and there were many other things, um, would have been enough to get somebody to stop. But for me, it was three days later, I think it was, I was borrowing my aunt's car because mine was totaled to go out drinking again. 
yeah, so anyway, back in Costa Rica, so that, that lasted maybe eight months or so that I was in the States and shipped back. <laughs> and so I, uh, so now, yeah, so now, now this was, that actually happened before my son was born. So it was when I came back, that was, uh, I got back with this girl and after, shortly after this, when my son was born. Now I had uh, this first suicide attempt and I told myself, I started thinking I wasn't a good enough father. There was no way I could take care of him. And that the best thing that I could do would be to just disappear, that he'd be better off without me. That remorse, that regret, that all those negative, all that negative self-talk. Um, when I was about maybe 25-ish, 26, was when it really ramped up. Now I'd lost an apartment, my last apartment. I'd already been kicked out of two or three, but I could, again, because I could still get jobs, I could still pay rent, I'd get another place until I lost my last one. And then I moved couch surf, and then I ran out of people to couch surf. Um, and then, I, and then at the same time, now I wasn't able to get any more jobs because I couldn't get anything together. I think I don't, I didn't even have any more clothes at, at that point, other than what I was wearing. Um, and then I lost my last apartment. And then it was the streets when I was about 27-ish. In that, there was two more times that I tried to choke myself. Um, and I just, I just wanted to die. I remember... It was like living life on autopilot and I was not in control of anything. Like the cocaine basically dictated everything I did. I would wake up in the morning or come to whenever I came to and just pray that I didn't do it again that day. And you know, 10 o'clock would come and I'd be like, yeah, I can do it. I can, I can make it without any 11 o'clock. Yeah, I can still do it. You know, one o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. I wonder what my dealer is doing. I wonder if he's okay. Maybe I should call him just to see how he's doing. Three o'clock. Uh, you know, he partied pretty hard last night. I might, I might, I should just go call and make sure he's okay, but I'm not going to ask for anything. I'm not going to. Um, and I remember walking, by this time I obviously didn't have phone or anything. And, and so I remember walking to the, to the payphone that was on the corner and I, like my mind was saying, walk back, walk back, turn around, turn around. But my legs, they just walked. Wow. There, there was no control. And I'd call and it would ring and ring and ring and ring and eventually go to voicemail. And there was always a, like this sense of relief. Like, yes, he didn't answer. And I'd hang up and I'd take two steps away from the phone. And say, oh, maybe he was in the shower or maybe he was in the bath. I should try, I should try calling again. And eventually what would happen is that if it took one time, if it took 20 times, I always got in touch with him. Wow. Uh, the, the psychosis was really bad by, by now where I take, uh, I don't know, I do two lines and my lines by this point were like a gram each. <laughs> it was, um, and uh, immediately I start hearing things and I, wow. you know, I think the FBI was coming. I thought if I saw, this was during the last bit when I still had an, like the last time I had an apartment. Um, if I saw cables along the, the trims of the walls, I'd tear them off because I thought they were microphones or lead cameras. If there was a, I had some paintings on the walls, I took them down because I thought there was cameras hidden in them. Uh, then the nail that was left, I thought that was a camera or a microphone, so I took that out. 
And then there was a hole. I thought there was a camera in there. So then I taped it up. So then I had all these Jeez. green poop jobs on, on, on the walls. Um, I punched a hole through a wall because I thought there was people like, uh, you know, those, those, those scenes in the movies when you have, um, when they're doing surveillance and they're in the, in a van, yeah. just with like their radios kind of hear what's going yep. on. Uh, so I thought there was people behind this wall doing that. And so I punched a hole through a wall. Uh, that was one of the reasons I was asked to leave from that place. <laughs> sure. Um, so yeah, 27-ish, uh, that's when uh, I tried to, I, I was, ended up on the street. I was basically dead. I was, I was basically dead. There was no life in me. And, and I didn't have, I'd lost all will to live. Um, there was nothing to live for. In, I thought there was nothing to live for. Um, and that the world would be a better place for sure if I just died or disappeared. And since I couldn't do anything about it, I'd already tried several times now, um, that the streets were the place to disappear. Is you just become like invisible. Right. Um, and uh, so that I was on the streets for about a year and a half, almost two years. And this was bad. I mean, I, I had nothing. I had like yeah. my torn pants uh, and like a little Dora the Explorer backpack that I had stolen <laughs> and a toothbrush that I'd had for, I don't know how long, uh, and a deodorant. Because those was like, that's how I kept, in my mind, at least I was going to be clean. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Um, until finally, you know, I, I, uh, I was in the most dangerous part of the streets in Costa Rica, hoping that you know, I get shot, I get stabbed again, this anything, nothing, nothing would happen. And then I was like, Jesus, I don't want to live. I can't die. Uh, I don't want to be here. I can't get out. Um, to the point where actually, I, uh, one of the things I remember the most, uh, the last time I was able to see myself in a mirror in, in that apartment before the last time I, I left was I'd gotten to the point where I couldn't even look at myself in the eye. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's bad when you can't look other people in the eyes, but when you can't even look yourself in the eye and you, and you realize it, um, it's bad. You know, there's, there's, it's, you're just full of shame. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I think that, and I think that it, you know, now, now I've worked on, on a lot of this, on a lot, a lot of this. And unfortunately it, 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 it's always tough with my family because there's always the, this, this, uh, feeling of like, oh, he's trying to blame us. Um, and for me, it's not about blame. Um, but the, one of the biggest roots of what, what that led, that led to that was uh, being physically and sexually abused when I was, you know, just a, like, two years old, three years old, up until I was about six or seven years old, where basically it's like if my own mom doesn't care enough about me to stop this from happening, then nobody cares about me. Like I don't deserve anybody's love, right? Right. Um, and so always trying to bring that up with my family has always been very difficult. They don't want to want to accept it and. and I get it, uh, but for the, for because they're more they they see it as me trying to blame them for hap what happened, and then for me it's more this is just what happened. It's not about right. blame. This is it, this is just what happened, and now I can work on that 
so that I don't have to go do what I was doing before. Right. It, it right. doesn't have to be good or bad. It doesn't have to be placing the blame on anybody or not. You know, uh, we, everybody makes mistakes. <laughs> um, and it's not so much about what mistakes we make, it's what we do about it when we realize that right. we, we have to accept that the mistake has been made. So anyway, um, I'd gotten to this place where yeah, definitely nobody, there's no way I'm worth living. I'm just taking up space, it's taking up air. And so September 26, 27, 26, yeah, of 2012, um, like I had done several times before, I said, tomorrow I'm not going to, uh, I, I need to die. I know. I'm just, I can't go on like this. I can't, I can't stop. Um, and there's no way out. So I uh, took my, so what I did was I, I came up with a plan and I said, tomorrow I'm going to go and I'm going to ask for money as early as I can. So I was up five in the morning begging for money, just begging for money, you know, got some coins here, some bills here. I, I was out there for maybe 10 hours. I hustled. I hustled that day. I got like the equivalent of maybe $150 or so. Oh, wow. Um, which in Costa Rica is, I don't know, there might, might as well be 1500 up here. Right. And, uh, and the plan was I was going to buy enough cocaine that I just wasn't going to be alive the next day. Oh, wow. Um, and so like, I went and got, I got my money. I walked over to to the place. I got must have been about twenty grams. It was more than that because I was such a frequent flyer with them that I they always gave me the extra special. Right, right. Um, I bought twenty grams. It was more than that. Um, and then on the way back, I stopped at a supermarket and bought thirty six beers. Um, and then I went into a used clothing store. And I stole a polo shirt and some jeans because when they found me, I didn't want them to find me in, in like the rags I was in. I went into a supermarket and I stole a, a, a toothbrush and a toothpaste. And then I wanted to go and I had enough money to check myself into this like really bad motel, like just super bad news, sleazy. Um, because I wanted to, it was where I was going to be able to take a shower and put my clothes on mm. and then that was where they were going to find me. Oh, wow. Um, and I never forget the, the lady that was at the check-in desk. She, I don't know what it was. There, there had to have been something about me that despite how bad that motel was and despite the things that she got to see on a daily basis, whatever I, whatever was on my face or whatever was around me, whatever I was giving off, she, she said, are you okay? What do you get? Just give me the room, you know. Like, no, no, no. Seriously, are you are you, are you okay? Uh, you don't look good. And I, that's probably the first time somebody normal, uh, like not from the streets, had actually asked me if I was okay in hmm. a couple of years. And so uh, I was like, yeah, 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 I'm fine, fine. Just give me the room. So I went in the room, took my shower, and then just started going to town. You know, lines, drinking the beers. And I remember she kept coming around every so often, like knocking on the door. Yeah, you're still okay. And the, the last thing I remember was thinking that I needed more beer. Like I, I just remember thinking that. 
the next thing I remember was being brought back by the paramedics, like me opening my eyes and the paramedics, they're doing their thing. And I don't think I've ever had such a flurry of emotions uh, in like a fraction of a second. Because I went from like surprised to pissed off, to sad, back to pissed off because they should have let me just die. Uh, and I, that was your goal. Yeah, and I tried to fight them too. They're like trying to help me. And I'm like, ah, why? You, you need to let me die. You know, you just uh, just let me go. Let me go. I guess I was covered in vomit. I peed on myself. You know, it was like it was. It was. They would have found me in a terrible. Well, they did find me in, in the, the guy. While I'm trying to punch him for not letting one of the paramedics, while I'm trying to punch him for not letting me die, he just hugged me. He grabbed me. I think he was. Well, he was trying to hold me down, but he also was like. He hugged me and he said, it's going to be okay. Um, and then I started crying. I said, no, you don't know. It's not going to be okay. It's never going to be okay. You know? And then I just started crying. crying. Even now I'm kind of getting a little. Yeah. And, th and then I was left with, now what? You know, the deal was if I was alive, I was going to do something. And I and I had made that deal with myself before. There was something different about that night. That night I wasn't supposed that that night was the night. You know, other times there was still a little bit of, well, maybe I won't die. You know, maybe I'll still be alive tomorrow. There was no tomorrow. That was the night. So I kind of strolled around the streets some more that day. And then that night there was a uh, a, a local hospital in the San Jose, the capital, that there was a graveyard guard who once in a while would let me sleep in the waiting room of the emergency department. As long as it wasn't too full and I didn't bother anybody, he'd let me take a chair in the back and you know I could rest there for a couple hours if it was raining or just really cold. And uh, he was there that night, so I went and I was exhausted. You know, I hadn't eaten in who knows how long. I hadn't slept in who knows how long. <clears throat> I'd just gone through this, like, incredible experience. And I started zoning out uh, and then started, like, kind of falling asleep. And then all of a sudden, there was these two. I heard two, I was woken up by a couple ladies to the sound of their crying. And I thought, why are they crying? Can't they see I'm sleeping? Like, this is where my head was. Like, why are they waking me up? And it got worse and got worse. And then I opened my eyes and I was going to yell at them for not letting me sleep. And just in time, just when the doctor came out to talk to them, and what it was, was it was the wife and the sister of a guy. And they were having a, a family get together, and, but he was part of a gang. And the rival gang showed up and they had shot him. And despite whatever surgery they had done, they, you know, they, he wasn't going to make it. And uh, this was when I was hearing this conversation, when I opened my eyes in time to see them both drop to the ground and just start crying. And they were covered in blood. And for whatever reason, that image, seeing them and just that image got burned into my, into my brain. And it was like, holy shit, I don't want to die. It was the first time in years when. I don't want to do, I don't want to do that. I don't want to die. I need to do something. And 
seconds later, I remembered about this retreatment center that, that someone had told me about. I think they had even tried to get me to go to it before. And I just kind of walked in the front door and walked out the side door. Yeah. <laughs> Within five minutes, um, I was like, that's where I need to go. And so the next day, I, I walked about, or I guess it was what, like 10 miles or something like that, eight, 10 miles from where I was to this place and banged on the gates and begged them to let me in. And the guy that runs it, he's a, you know, he's, he's in recovery as well. He said, all right, well, you know, we can, we can try to help you. You have to do everything we say, you know, when we say, when we, do, when we tell you to do it, you do it and we'll go day by day. As long as you do it, you get a bed and three meals. If you don't, you're out. And I was so broken. I was so desperate, whatever. And uh, he let me go for, for free, pretty much. I mean, it's uh, this place, it's called the Costa Rica Recovery Center. And it's, uh, I think it's like an alternative for, I think, from what I gather, treatment in the U.S. is very expensive, 30000 30, a month or, you know, whatever. Um, I think at the time, this place was about 5000 or so. But yeah, he let me go there. He just said that someday I was going to be able to pay it back somehow. Uh, I didn't really know what, I didn't really know what, there's no way I'm ever going to have $5,000, you know, there's no way. Right. Um, and so, but okay, sure. If you say so. Uh, um, and that's how it started. Um, huh. That last suicide attempt um, was what got me into, into treatment. And it's funny because at uh, maybe about a week or two weeks clean, I was, my mind obviously was started saying like, Hey, you, you got this. You can, you can probably control this now. You could probably leave this place and probably go party. And, but now you know how to control it. So, you know, it won't be like before. Right. Right. So I figured maybe I'll just stay here a couple of weeks. It's good food. It's a bed. Uh, and then I'll, you know, go back out and do my thing. And just down the street on the corner, there was a party that, that one night, this one night. And that they, it turned into like the police showing up. We could hear all the yelling. There was music, the you know, plates and glasses breaking, and it turned in. There was a huge thing. And I'll never forget. Uh, it was maybe 10, 11 o'clock at night, and I hadn't been able to really go to sleep uh, up until then. For me, it was always I passed out or I was just so exhausted that just my body just finally gave in. And that night, that was, I was thinking that the next day was when I was going to go out and, you know, try to escape this place. And then that happened. And I was laying in bed, hearing all of this, and I could see the flashing lights, the reflection of the flashing lights. And I, and I thought to myself, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. I don't know how I'm going to stop it, but I don't want that. I don't, I don't want that anymore. And that night was the first night that I actually went to sleep. I closed my eyes after that. I thought about that and I went and I closed my eyes and I just went to sleep. I didn't pass out. It wasn't exhaustion. I like closed my eyes and just, and then the next day I woke up and it was, I was the most refreshed that I had felt in, I can't even remember, maybe ever. Like, I don't know if I'd ever slept with such peace and calmness. I came into this place, September 28th, 2012 was the day after 
uh, my last suicide attempt. It took me a couple of days to figure out, you know, what how to get into this place. Um, um, and then so, but I got there, and then that day was like, no, I'm, I got to do this. I gotta, I gotta give everything I can. I gotta throw everything I have at this. I gotta do it. Um, and so that's how my recovery started. Well, that wraps up part one of my bike talk with Felipe Nystrom. I hope you can join us for part two, where Felipe talks about his road from addiction all the way to the world championships. It truly is a great story. Please tune in. Again, if you or someone you know is in crisis and having suicidal thoughts or thoughts of hurting yourself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, where you can talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area anytime, 24-7-365. If you're located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. Thanks so much for listening to Bike Talk with Dave. If you dig it, please subscribe, pass this on to your friends, and if you'd be so kind as to rate and review, that would be awesome. We've got a ton of talks in the can, so I hope you continue to tune in. And if you have any ideas of someone that you'd like to hear from, Message me on Instagram at dmabel122. I hope you have a great week.
Welcome to Bike Talk with Dave. I'm your host, Dave Mabel, and I'm glad you're able to join me in these conversations with incredible people doing incredible things. Before we get to our show, I want to tell you about the Iowa Mountain Bike Championship Series. Yes, there is a Mountain Bike Championship Series in Iowa. It's a summer-long series of great mountain bike races throughout the state of Iowa, from shorter cross-country races to the marathon. You can find the entire schedule and information at www.bikeiowa.com backslash IMBCS. We hope you check it out and put some of the IMBCS races on your schedule. I've got an extra special show for you today. You may have listened to my second episode, if not, you're most welcome to, in which I talked to three guys from smaller countries who found their way to the starting line of the Cyclocross World Championships in Fayetteville, Arkansas in January. One of those guys, Felipe Nystrom, has such an incredible story that it just needs to be shared. We talked for nearly two and a half hours. I am splitting up uh, my conversation with him into two episodes, but I'm dropping them both on the same day so that you can jump right from the first to the second episode if you like. Felipe, growing up in Costa Rica, he had a rough bit with drugs and alcohol. He found himself on the streets and penniless. I, I really should just let him tell you the story. <laughs> 